You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from John 12, 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to him, meeting, went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. <clears throat> now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. As I am sure you're aware by now, it's in an election year. Huh? Right, yeah. Everybody, everybody knows this. You've, you've seen the ads. You've gotten the text messages, which I'm still wondering how they got my phone number and why they call me Deborah. <laughs> you've got the, the, the debates, or so-called debates. Uh, when they happen, it's questionable. Uh, it seems more like a Saturday Night Live sketch of sorts. But we just know it. It's in the air right now. And, and when we get to the season every four years or even every two years as it comes, Christians start to ask this question, what is our part in this political sphere? Should we as Christians care about politics? Is that right? Is that a good investment of our time? And not just to care about it, but to actually be involved. What should that look like? And as this question gets asked, unfortunately, many mainstream denominations echo the secularists in their sentiment of Christians and their relationship to politics or government. It's like they would say, okay, it's fine for you to vote, but otherwise just stay out of it. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your head down, pray to God, but don't you dare lift your voice. And we see this 
this attitude in, in like, yeah, okay, go vote, but stay out of the picture. You see this in, in the insistence that there is a division between, a radical division between church and state, which actually, if you go back and read the founding fathers, you'll find that their whole idea of, of, of this uh, democratic republic revolves around a moral and religious people. But we have this idea of this division of church and state that, that is warped and, and misguided. You have, you have the sentiment that said, hey, Christian, your job is to focus on the eternal. Don't worry about what's going on down here. You just worry about the eternal stuff. But actually, that's one of the big heresies in the first century churches. This is Gnosticism. To think, oh, we only need to pay attention to the spiritual things. The physical, the temporal doesn't matter. That that at all does not square with biblical Christianity. And of course, you get these statements like, well, Jesus wasn't political, so neither should Christians be. Now, the problem with all these common thoughts and and you hear these these phrases regurgitated over and over again, the problem with this is, as, as we'll see today, is that they are all wrong. They're all wrong. In fact, here, let me, let me push this point here. To call Jesus Lord is a political statement. See, we don't realize this. In the first century, as Jesus, he, he lived his life, his ministry, he was crucified, died, was buried, he was raised again in this church. We got Pentecost, God raises up the church, sends him out all over the world. But, the, but the, the number one, the first creed of the early church was Jesus is Lord. Now, the significance of that is that if Christians are saying that Jesus is Lord, that means that Caesar is not. In the Roman Empire, the way that, that the Romans would tribute, and, and Caesar had sort of basically claimed to be God. He had this deification. This, this is part of the early first century stuff and, and back before that. But Caesar had set himself up as a God. And so he would require his subjects to say, Caesar is Lord. Now the Christians come along and say, we cannot call Caesar Lord because Christ is Lord. So even right there, you have this antithetical relationship between Jesus and his followers, and the mainstream culture. Jesus is Lord is a political statement. Same with Jesus is king. We think about Jesus being king. Not just king, a king among many, but king of kings and Lord of lords. This is is information that is seeded all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New For example, in Colossians chapter one, we're told that Christ is preeminent. That means he is high and above. He precedes all others, both in created order and in authority. In Matthew 28, after Jesus is resurrected, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. In Ephesians chapter one, The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is far above every other power and principality and ruler of this age. Jesus is political. Jesus has a kingdom. And one of the things that biblically-minded Christians need to understand, especially in this time, is that we are not trying to weasel Jesus into politics. We're not trying to assert him, you know, like, like, like he's a, a candidate who's politicking, trying to c- 
collect enough votes that he might just get up in office and then finally establish. No, 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 that's a misunderstanding. Jesus is king right now. He doesn't need a majority vote. He just needs one, the father who grants the authority. And right now, all people in all places, in all times, are under his rule. Even governments. Now, now we see this in Psalm chapter two. Well, this is all, I'm setting this up here. But Psalm chapter two is one of the most overlooked psalms of the Bible, which is a shame, because right at the beginning, I can find it here, and it points to this reality that Jesus is seated as king And he's speaking to all of the world governments, all of the rulers, all of the kings throughout the world. And it says this, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. He's speaking to governmental agencies. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, who's that, Jesus? Kiss the son, honor the son, obey the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. There are all who take refuge in him. So even Old Testament, New Testament, we're seeing this reality that Christ is king, he deserves to be honored. It is the responsibility of all people in all places to give him the honor and the praise that he is due. Now I realize there might be some people in the room right now saying, oh boy, this is one of those churches here, right? Looking around for the American flags, like who is the next political candidate that we're gonna get up on stage? We're not one of those churches, but we are one of these churches. We are one of these churches that loves the Bible, that we believe the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative, totally sufficient word of God. And it speaks to every area of life. So, so if you're like, are, these one of, are, those, are we one of those churches? Yes, we are one of those churches. We love the Bible and the Bible tells us. And so together this morning, we're gonna open up the Bible. We're gonna open up in John chapter 12. And one of the things that we see in John chapter 12 is that Jesus is undeniably presented as a king. We have this great event here that's called the triumphal entry. Significant, very significant event. Where Jesus, he rides into Jerusalem, which is the city of King David. King David is the greatest king uh, of Israel who's ever lived. We're told he's a flawed man, but he's a man after God's own heart. And God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 16. He says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God tells King David, your kingdom will be an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that there will be no end of. And what we see today is Jesus riding into the, to the city of David to take his seat on the throne. Now, this is different. This, this is in contrast to things that we've seen earlier with Jesus, like, for example, in John chapter six, where the crowd, they are eager to make by force Jesus king. And Jesus retreats. He says, no, 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 no. He says, my time has not yet come. But here, we see the cries of the people. We see all of the symbolism. We see all of these Old Testament references that are being brought to the front and they all point to one reality that Jesus is king and Jesus not only goes along with it, he doesn't deny it. He, he receives this. 
He's ascending to the throne. So if, if as my assertion is true that Christ is king, Jesus is king, then we need to ask follow-up questions of the text. Especially if we're bristling at this reality. We need to ask, first of all, what kind of king is King Jesus? If Jesus sits on the throne, what kind of king occupies the throne? We need to ask the question, what is the nature of Christ's kingdom? Are we Gnostics and thinking that, oh, it's just a spiritual kingdom? Or is there more to it? Is it both spiritual and physical? We need to ask, who are the subjects? Who who are those who are under the authority of this king? And then, as we look at the text, one of the things that we'll see is, is there's a big parade going on. There's a lot of celebrating going on. Why are the people so excited? And if they're so excited, ought we not also be excited too? See, these are questions that as we navigate our way through John chapter 12, I want us to to pay attention to, and I I believe that I'm going to answer these questions. So as you open up with me, John 12, we'll start making our way through that. Now, as you turn to John 12, one of the important things here in this conversation is remembering the context of this passage, even chapter 12 itself. Last week, we saw that Jesus was anointed at the beginning of John chapter 12, And, and the word anoint Um, is connected to the Greek word kairo, which means to be set apart, to be consecrated, um, to be designated for a a specific function. So a person would be anointed in a certain function for a specific, or excuse me, in a specific office for a specific function. Now there's a lot of anointing, if when you read the Old Testament, there is a lot of anointing that goes on, just kind of throughout. But there are three reoccurring anointings that take place for three distinct offices. They are that of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And you can go to places like Leviticus 8, gives us the first instance of of Aaron being anointed as the high priest, and Jake touched on that a little bit last week. Um, You can go to a place like 1 Kings 19, where you see both a prophet, so Elisha, and then King Yehu are both being called to be anointed at the same time. So you see prophets, priests, and king receiving this anointing, and each of these offices has its own specific roles. So for example, the priest meditates, or meditates, they might meditate, they mediate between God and man. The responsibility of the priest is to to offer sacrifices that atone for sin. And this is what Jake highlighted for us last week, where Jesus is not only the the high priest who goes between to mediate, he is the Lamb of God who lays himself down on the altar to pay for the sins of the world with his own blood. So in that sense, we saw Jesus anointed as the priest. The prophet is the one who speaks on God's behalf. We'll see this explicitly next week as we keep going on in in John chapter 12, where Jesus says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me commandment what to say and what to speak. Jesus stands here, he says, my whole ministry, I have said everything the Father wants me to say. He's, He's functioning as a prophet. But today our focus is on Jesus as the king, the king who rules on behalf 
of God. Now, now what we saw earlier with Jesus being uh, anointed by Mary is essentially Jesus being anointed for all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. This is a, a tri, big word, triperspectival, meaning three, three views, three perspectives, three aspects. Now, the reason why we must, our Jesus must fill all three of these is highlighted by um, a 17th century Genevan Calvinist named Francis Turretin. And he says, the reason why we need this, the reason why we need to understand Jesus filling all three of these offices as prophet, priest, and king is because we have a threefold problem that sin has created. Listen to what he says. The threefold misery of men introduced by sin, ignorance, guilt, and the tyranny and bondage by sin required this conjunction a threefold office. In other words, sin created specific problems that require specific solutions. Ignorance is healed by the prophetic, guilt by the priestly, the tyrannical and corruption of sin by the kingly. Prophetic light scatters the darkness of error, the merit of the priest that is away guilt and procures reconciliation for us. The power of the king removes the bondage of sin and death. The prophet shows God to us. The priest leads us to God and the king joins us together and glorifies us with the prophet with him. The prophet, sorry, excuse me. The prophet enlightens the mind by the spirit of illumination. The priest, by the spirit of consolation, tranquilizes then the heart and conscience. The king, by the spirit of sanctification, subdues rebellious affections. See, Jesus fills all three of these offices, which is why Jesus is called the anointed one. The, the word, the Jewish word Messiah means anointed one. The anointed one. In the Greek, um, they, don't, they don't use Messiah, that's a Hebrew word, but in the Greek they call him Christ. Christ, the anointed one. It's because Jesus is anointed. There, there's two things that really have caught the attention of the people in the first century. One is, is the actual anointing. There's something significant. In fact, in other gospel accounts, um, it's told that, that this act of anointing Jesus' feet will be remembered through all of the ages because it was such a profound thing that occurred. But the other thing that people are paying attention to is the fact that Jesus has raised his buddy Lazarus from the dead, who was dead in the tomb for four days. And Jesus spoke, and Lazarus came out. So the significance of, of Jesus, of what's happened, what he's done, isn't lost on people. Now, to be fair, these people see dimly, but they are not dense. They see dimly, but they are not dense. And we see this reality in the fact that a large crowd gathers together in verse 12 as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. In the day, a large crowd had come, verse 12, that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So in other words, word about Jesus has been spreading. Word about what he has done, specifically with Lazarus, was getting out. We see this explicitly in verse 17, where it says that the crowd had been with him, uh, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So people are talking about Jesus here. What happened was significant. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. 
Look, the world has gone after him. So one of the things in the backdrop of the whole deal is, is the Pharisees, these are like the religious elites of the day, despise Jesus. They hate his ministry. They hate everything he stands for. And they have been scheming. Multiple times they've attempted to kill him and Jesus has managed to get away. But they're having this realization here that they're fighting a losing battle. They see, okay, Jesus is doing all this stuff and people are like a magnet just being sucked to him. And they realize, man, we're, we're losing ground. Now, this is so significant, in fact, that we see this in verse 20 and 21, where even the Greeks, so it's not just the Jews who are interested in Jesus, but also we see the Greeks coming to interact with Jesus. They come to, to Philip and Andrew, and, and Andrew and Philip went to Jesus, and they said, we, we want to we talk with this Jesus. We want to ask him. We want to see Jesus. And you just see this magnetic pull of Jesus. What is that? That is the Father drawing people to himself. And God's doing that today. God is drawing people to himself as the church bears witness about the person and work of Jesus. How Jesus shows up and resurrects spiritually dead people. How Jesus changes our lives, makes us, takes us from this, this bashful, fearful, insecure people to a kind of people that no matter what comes, we can stand secure in Christ. P- people who were are, who are once so concerned about the opinions of other people now can say, I have one person that I want to please, and that is God. I would rather please God than please man. So we see people drawing, being drawn toward Jesus. And we see this reception. As Jesus comes into the city of David, we see this reception. It's a celebration, it's essentially a parade. We see this big party erupt here in verses 13. So take a look here. They heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young man, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, there's, there's a lot of really interesting things going on here. A lot of really, I mean, and, and one of the things that makes us such a, an exciting passage is once you dig in and you start seeing all these connections throughout both church history and through the Old Testament, it's like, boom, it's like neon lights go up. Now, the first thing we wanna ask is, what's the deal with these palm branches? What's the deal with these palm branches? Now, if you, if you remember a couple weeks back, we were talking about the Festival of Lights or the Festival of Dedication that happened, that, that, um, the significant event that happened with Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, and, uh, and this guy named Antioch Epiphanes, this, this battle for Jerusalem, and, and outnumbered big time, the Jews triumph, defeat this world power. Well, when that happened, they, they pulled down palm branches and we're waving them around. That's part of their celebration in this big parade. And these palm branches represented something, victory. It was a symbol of victory. 
In fact, there were coins later on that were trying to be minted that had this palm branch on it because it was a symbol. It's like, no matter what happens, Christ, God's people are victorious. And we even see this imagery carry on into the New Testament, not, not just here, but we see this with Revelation 7, chapter 9. You, you go to the throne room, and what are the saints waving? Palm branches. Why? Because Christ is victorious. And so these people are waving palm branches, perhaps in sort of a prophetic sense, that Christ is victorious or will be victorious. Now, while that is what they're thinking, and it will ultimately become true, but maybe not in the sense that they were thinking, there's a bit of paradox to this. Because on one hand, you have the palm branches that are being waved as a sign of victory. On the other side, you have Jesus who's riding in on a donkey. See, a, a valiant warrior would be riding on a big old steed, something that communicates, I'm here and I can trample you, buddy. A donkey doesn't do that. A donkey doesn't have, in fact, we're told even, even looking at this passage, if we look at um, Zechariah chapter nine, we see that, that this isn't intentional. This is a, a gentle and lowly beast that's hardly fit for the triumphal entry of a king. But it's not a coincidence. Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. So, so here, here's the connections beginning. We see, okay, this, this passage talks about a king. Here Jesus is, and then it's quoted here, straightforward. Your king is coming to you. Righteousness and having righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10 I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9. And I forgot to put slides up there today, so that's my bad, guys. But Zechariah 9, it's real. So here we have this scripture, this, this, this prophecy from the prophet Zechariah that the king will come riding on a, a donkey. Now what's interesting, like I mentioned earlier, is that unlike in John chapter six where the people are trying to make Jesus king by force and he says, no thank you, and he bounces, this time Jesus is clearly presenting himself as king. He, he's receiving these these chants that are washing over him, right? Hosanna, blessed he who's coming in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then, of course, the reference to Zechariah 9, the king is coming. Now, we're told why the difference between John 6 and verse. Jesus tells us why he has a different attitude right now, why he's receiving these chants. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Before this moment, we were told the, the hour has not yet arrived. The hour is not here. So Jesus sort of co covertly keeps his head down, keeps doing the things that the father tells him to do, saying the things the father tells him to say, collecting the people that the father is giving him to keep in his flock. But there's this moment of revelation that is now upon us. He says, the son of man must be glorified. The hour has come. Now here's another 
Old Testament reference that we need to jump back to. Because this is a phrase, and we've probably touched on this before, but this phrase, the son of man, is a, a loaded title for Jesus. And we, we hear the son of God, that's another one, right, which, which speaks of the divinity of, God, of Christ, he and the father being of the same essence. But then the son of man, and usually we think about that this is Jesus connecting with humanity, but, that, but that's not actually the case. The son of man, it's not that Jesus doesn't connect with humanity, that's not what I'm saying, but the son of man has a very specific purpose. In John, me, Daniel chapter seven, verses 13, we, we hear this prophecy from Daniel, the guy who was in the lion's den. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man, okay, one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. All right, so let's think about this here. You get the ancient of days, that's, that's the father. Now you have the son of man who, who's of the same essence of the father, but coming, it's, they're distinct persons. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the son of man, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Oh, that sounds familiar. David's, David's covenant. Which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here you see very clearly this connection between the son of man who's been granted all authority, all dominion, who has a, an eternal kingdom that's going to last that was, will be unrivaled, it will not be defeated. All people, all nations, all languages would serve him. We're seeing very clearly when you see all of these references, Jesus is coming as a king. And the people recognize him as such. We see this in their chant in verse 13 where, where they say, um, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, there are three really, all, there's like three statements in here and they're all very important. First of all, we, we see, seeing this, this prophecy of, of Zechariah 9, the king of Israel coming to them on a donkey, they, they pick that up. They pick that up and they confess it with their mouth. But the other one, at the very beginning, say Hosanna. Now, this is a word that oftentimes we, we would uh, associate this to a, a cry or, or a, a word of adoration. We sing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Which it is that, it's a, it's a word of adoration. But actually, the literal term of Hosanna means save now. It's a cry for help. Save us, save us now. We, we are helpless. Come be our help and on top of that, as they cry out for help, save now, you hear this, this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is actually a quote directly from Psalm 118. And I would, I would, if I had time, I would read the whole entire Psalm 118. I don't have the time to do this, but let me highlight this. Psalm 118, verse 22, here's what it starts telling us. The stone that the builders rejected. Who are the builders? Pharisees, religious cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in us. Glad in it. Now listen to this. Save us. Hosanna. We pray, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. 
So, so just as the Israelites were crying for, for Judas Maccabeus to come and deliver and to, to, to bring restoration to the, to the kingdom of Israel, there's the same attitude that's at play right now in the first century. Save us, O Lord. We pray, give us success. And then here's the quote, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. See, this, this is all the stuff that's going on in the back of, around, uh, of, their, of their thought, of their Jewish, um, their Jewish, what am I trying to say? It's like the Jewish imagination, if you can call it that. They're seeing what's happening and they're putting the pieces together. Now, with all these things that we've laid out, if we start putting these pieces together, we begin to see what kind of king Jesus is. What kind of king is Jesus? Well, first of all, Daniel 7 tells us that all of his authority comes from God. The ancient of days grants authority, grants dominion to the son of man. Now, not only that, but in the beginning of John chapter one, we're told that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, the word was God. So it's not just that the authority comes from God, it's Jesus himself comes from God. He proceeds from the father. So we see this divine origin, both of his authority and of his person. Secondly, we see that the authority that has been granted to Jesus the king is an authority that does not have offense. There is no end to his domain. Even if we try to wile off things and say, well, that's secular. It's like, no, that's not how it works with the God of the cosmos. There is no secular and sacred divide. There is no spot where Jesus's jurisdiction ends. We see this very clearly in several places. One of them is in Daniel 7 where he says, All peoples, all nations, and languages should serve him. Now, we can also say it's an eternal kingdom in all places and all times. We even see this in the reference um, back in, well, let's see, where was it? We see this in in, uh, Zechariah 9. His rule shall be from sea to sea. Well, what sea? I don't know. Pick a sea, and it goes from sea all the way around the world to that sea again. And from river to the ends of the earth. We see this infinite, of, infinite authority of Jesus. His domain is over the entire cosmos. Now, this is why Psalm 2 is so important, because the reality is Jesus' domain is around everything, his authority over everything. But as rebels, we, on an individual basis, but also as a societal basis, we see people rejecting the authority of Jesus. When that happens, nations perish. Nations face judgment. When the lordship of Jesus is denied, hardship comes. This is why in Psalm 2, it's like, kiss the son lest you perish. And it says, take, take refuge. Take refuge in the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Why? Because he truly does have all authority everywhere. But here's the other thing that I want you to see that I think oftentimes we get overlooked. And this is that what they profess in Psalm 118, that Jesus...
So, so Jesus has been given all this, but then, think about this, being blessed is having God's cosmic favor rest upon you. We see this, that the father is pleased with the son. We see this in his baptism. We see this later on in the transfiguration that God said, this is my son with whom I'm pleased. He has the cosmic favor of the heavenly father placed upon him. And the people profess this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is an authority. Jesus has an infinite authority. He is blessed by God. And all of these things would make total sense to the Jews in the first century, though maybe not to us. Maybe there are some places here where, where our worldview is, is rubbing against the Bible. And in these moments, it's important for us to understand that it's our duty to conform to the word of God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Where does that come from? From the word of God. We need to understand these things and receive them with gladness. But here's the thing. The, the characteristic that, uh, of King Jesus that probably threw the Jews off his trail was the fact that he came with a donkey. He came humbly. He possessed this humility. We see this in, in just riding on a lowly steed. Jesus doesn't come to run for office. That's true. Jesus doesn't come to campaign. He's not trying to make a power grab. And part of the expectation of the Jews at that time was that they were expecting a ferocious warrior who's gonna wield the sword, who's going to bring conquest by the shedding of blood. They're like Judas Maccabeus, he's going to liberate God's people from their enemies in the same manner. Now this is what throws them off the trail is that instead Jesus comes not as this, not as this valiant warrior waving a sword around. He doesn't come bearing a weapon or a sword. He comes in humility, but here's what we need to do right here. This is very important. We mustn't confuse Jesus's humility with impotence. Jesus is an effective Savior. He is a strong Savior. His humility doesn't negate that. Jesus is not soft. He is not weak, though he is the most humble person to ever walk the face of the earth. And we see this in many passages, but even in the passages that I've shared with you, Zephaniah chapter 9, verse 10, he's trouncing the enemy. He's like, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Like Jesus, he is not rival. There's nobody that can compete to him with him. And it's actually the ultimate act of humility that will secure his victory, that proves that he is a strong and sufficient savior. And he tells us exactly how he's gonna do this. He, he uses a metaphor or illustration in verse 23, when Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How will he be glorified? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life 
in the world will keep it for eternal life. See, Jesus says, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. That, that means to, to assume all of the honor that is due to him. But glorification does not come without first humiliation. Before Jesus ascends to the cross that stands before him, this is his coronation. Jesus' coronation as king, not just of Israel, because that's too short-sighted. It's the whole cosmos. His coronation doesn't happen with a gold throne and a majestic um, crown, but it comes with thorns. It comes with the cross. Jesus is the strong savior who wins by humbling himself to the point of death. He defeats death by death. And now because he has died, life comes in his wake. This is what he's getting at. A seed that stays by itself, it's no, what good is it? If you get a seed and put it in a jar, it's not gonna grow. You're not gonna see any fruit come off of that. But a seed that's planted, that's, that's buried, give it what it needs, comes forth a harvest, fruit. This is what Jesus did. He, he, he broke the power of death by death, and now comes life after him, and from his death comes a huge harvest. It looks like in the eyes of the world that Jesus is a loser. It does. Good Friday, Jesus looks like a giant loser. He's mocked, he's ridiculed. You know, they, they put that sign above his head that, oh, king of the Jews, like it's, it's a joke. Oh, if you're, if you're so powerful, why don't you get yourself down off of the cross? It looked like Jesus was a loser. But through that came victory. Because three days later, by the power of God, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, this is, this is something that the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two, that though Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, Jesus was ultimately exalted by God the Father. Because he went to death on a cross, he was elevated above her. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though who, though, uh, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The seed was planted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is political so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, political, to the glory of God the Father. God raised him. And because God has raised Christ and is pleased with his death, we too are being raised in Christ. Jesus right now is raising sinners from their death, their spiritual death, and bringing us into new life. And right now, the church, through all of the last 2,000 years, is the fruit of Jesus' work. And with every age, 
more and more fruit is coming. Now this is the thing here, because Jesus is the king, he's the blessed king, blessings flow through him into us. In Ephesians 1, we're told we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. See, this is why, this is why there is rejoicing. See, it's the blessed king of blessing. He, he, He receives God's favor and then conveys that on to us. Look look at this in John 12. He says, uh, this is verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him favor of God. Through Christ and his work, we receive that. Not by what we do. Not by heaping up our merits and trying to prove that we're a good enough person. No, no, no. The, the, the blessings of God comes to the reality that we say, Hosanna, save us. Save now. I don't have anything in myself to, to leverage myself into God's favor. I am dependent upon the work of Christ. And when I see that Christ has come in the name of the Lord to bring with me, to bring with him all of the blessings of God, I say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because he brings blessing. Now, when you understand, it's all piecing together, like the, the, the kind of king Jesus is, who he rules over. And when you understand the kingship of Jesus, it will profoundly change you. It will profoundly change. And there's just, I mean, I could do this a thousand different ways, but there's, there's two postures that I see here in John 12. The first posture is that of joyful worship, which what I was just getting at. When you realize your need and you see that Jesus fills that need, joyful worship. And the other one is triumphant humility. Triumphant humility. Now, to to jump back to joyful worship, when we see what Jesus has done for us, when we see that he's just poured out all of God's favor toward us, that it's just fuel for the fire of worship. And and if your heart feels cold, if, if worship feels hard right now, you're probably forgetting the absolute scandal of the gospel. You're losing perspective of this incredible thing that God has done for us, that all we, get, all we have to do is receive it by faith, a faith that God grants us himself. See, if we understand what kind of king Jesus is and the fact that he's a king that laid his life down for his own people, How could we not be a torrent of worship, just like constantly flowing from our hearts? And one of the things that will indicate that your worship life is is in a good spot, that, that you're actually seeing Jesus for what he is, you're responding to him the way that you ought to, is that you are a person who lives to connect other people to the king of the cosmos. We would say here that you live on mission, that you're an evangelist, 
that you're sharing the gospel, the good news of Christ's rule and reign. And we see this specifically with Andrew and Philip. We've got the Greeks who wanna come and they wanna talk to Jesus, they wanna see Jesus, and it's these guys who act as this connector that they bring them in to Jesus. We wanna connect you. That's what we need to be like to our friends and family, our neighbors, coworkers that don't yet know Jesus, that are not submitting to his rule and reign, have not received life. There's a burden for us to be that kind of person. And when we're not, it, it tells us that, that my affections are off. My love for Jesus is weak. Now at no time was Jesus' affection for you weak. He saw it through to the end, and what he starts, he finishes. As the Spirit brings these truths to our hearts, it changes us. Joyful worship, joyful mission. And the second part is triumphal humility. Triumphant humility. Now these seem paradoxical. The idea of being triumphant, you know, you're proud, you're, you're, there's a sense that is like this, uh, the way that we think of it is a self-deprecating thing, but I, I, don't, I think it's a skewed version of humility. Triumphant humility looks like I have very profound needs. I see myself rightly, not in an overflated way. I see myself the way God sees me. I see my need. And though I've got empty hands, and I'm very needy. What makes me joyful, what makes me glad, what gives me a sense of boasting is that Christ has done it for me. He's provided everything that I need. That he's brought me from a place, place of being a defeated loser to now, in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Now, this is not in ourselves. This is not our own accomplishment. This is the work of Christ in and through us. We have this triumphant humility. See, we are told to boast. We are told to boast. Not in ourselves, not in our flesh, but to boast in Christ. Why? Because he's victorious. Now, we see um, an aspect of humility here. I think, it's, I think it's fantastic, honestly. And you probably missed it in verse 16, where um, the whole, like, connection of prophecy to fulfillment is being laid out a bunch of times. And you'd expect like John to be like, yeah, I knew it. I knew it the whole time. Jesus was, he was the king. I knew it. You'd expect him to be like, yeah, I'm the guy writing the book. I figured it out. But look, he says, his disciples did not, John wrote this. He's talking about himself. Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, that's some profound humility. Guys, it just flew over my head. But here's, here's the thing that changes it. The glorified Christ opened my eyes to see. So there you see this, this triumphant humility even in this. Now, here, here's another place as I wrap up here. Triumphant humility the activity of triumphant humility looks like submitting ourselves as servants to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that I say, look, this, this is my king, and I know that he's a good king because he's done this for me, and whatever he says, I'm going to receive it as his kindness to me. 
So, so when the word of God says, do this with your life, do this with your household, do this with your money, do this with your social media, do this with the way that you consume things, I say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna receive that as a kindness from my king. I'm gonna submit to his rule and reign. And, and if I go back to, to, to uh, Turretin here, he's subduing our rebellious affections so that they would be aligned to affections of righteousness. When Christ is our king, we associate with him in this, I mean, we're, we're gonna talk about it here pretty soon, but this sort of, we talked about union with Christ. He in me, me in him. There's this profound unification that happens between Jesus and his people. And we're gonna see this in high priestly prayer. But one of the realities here, that if we truly are servants of the king of the cosmos, if we have this union with Christ, here's, this is what you need to understand about your identity, about who you are to your core in Christ. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have been baptized into Christ in his role as prophet, priest, and king. Let me explain this. It's not that you are now the high priest or the, the king, or it's not that. But in a subservient role to Christ, the high priest, to Christ, the king of the cosmos, to Christ, the great prophet, we take on characteristics where we speak truth and love like the priests and to those who are outside. We, we, we mediate, we pray for, we intercede for as, as a kind of priest, a royal priesthood, First Peter says. And we also, carrying on with the creation mandate, is we learn to exercise domain, dominion, to rule our houses, our places well in a way that reflects the kingship of Christ. This is what, this is what Christian, this is what a healthy church does. And when we follow Jesus the way that he commands, the promise is that we too will receive honor as he has been honored. This is why we're told that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Because of what Christ has done and because of the spirit-filled obedience that it moves us toward, we are granted the cosmic favor of God. We are honored by God. That's crazy. That, that those who, would, who are meant to honor God would receive honor from God. But this is the scandal of the gospel. That Christ the King laid down his life for us, his servants. And now we take joy in laying our lives down for the advancement of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness and your grace that while we were lost and astray, you came after us. We did not reason ourselves toward you, but you drew us near. What, what might we see in your sovereign will? What, what power we see in the fact that you take broken, dead sinners and you make us alive with the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. God, we want to be the people in this place now that, that acknowledge your rule and reign in all things. The people that are, are, that are praying faithfully and living faithfully along the prayer that, that you taught us to pray, to pray, Lord, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. Would that be true? Would the, the, the uh, mission of God advance, the kingdom of God spread here like a mustard seed and fill the whole earth? With the blessings flow. You are blessed, King, and you have blessed us greatly in Christ. 
We love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.